You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we dive deep into the world of corporate governance and advisory board with esteemed guest, Luis Brookman. Luis brings a wealth of experience and insights gained from her extensive career in board advisory roles. Here's a breakdown of the intriguing topics covered in our conversation. Understanding board dynamics, differentiating observer, consultant, and advisory roles, enhancing board members' skills and continuous improvement, impact of advisory boards on company performance, barriers to join in large public company boards, and much more. All right, let's begin this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, and I want to give a thank you to Sean Steele, who made the introduction for this week's episode. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Luis, I'm super excited to have you on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. And I want to thank Sean, who is a past guest for making the introduction. Uh, If you want, I'll have a link for his episode in our show notes for this, but Louise, tell our audience a little bit about yourself and what you're working on. Well, thank you for the invitation and for the other Sean to be able to be involved in this as well. So it's a pleasure being here. A bit of background to me, Sean. I'm the founder and CEO of the Advisory Board Centre. We're the global professional body for the advisory board sector. We operate globally and it's about raising the standard of advisory boards worldwide. So for our audience and even myself, I'm really curious. How does one kind of go about setting up an advisory board? Can you give a little bit background on the advisory board itself? Yeah. So every business and every organization is really different. And so having a one size fits all for establishing and managing and refreshing an advisory board, it just actually doesn't work. But we know that there are common models that in the mid-market and the business sector that businesses seem to just really have as their go-to model. Um, Most businesses, when they have an advisory board, and this is generally a business of $1.5 million in revenue through to $1 to $200 million in revenue, they'll generally have an independent certified chair and it will take them about three months to establish an advisory board with their chair, get to know each other, get to know the business and get into a really good rhythm of receiving and managing external advice in a more formalised manner. Once they've gone through that establishment phase, they then bring on their external advisors. And most businesses will have an advisory board that meet on a quarterly basis for up to three years. When they're evaluating everything about their business and really needing that, that really solid, consistent support, accountability advice, it's really good to have that as a journey for up to three years. But then advisory boards can be more specific around a particular strategy rather than everything. And that can range from an advisory board for 90 days up to 18 months or longer. So there's a lot of variability to make sure that it's really fit for purpose. But most importantly, it's really going to be impactful in creating the results that the business is looking after. For that time frame, I mean, that that seems so broad, 90 days, six months, three years. Now, is that more task dependent or goal specific for that advisory board or why those times more often or not those times? It's when a business is trying to get either to something or through something, They are, are, it means they're in a transition phase that they don't want to stay in that space, right? So a business that's scaling 
or exiting will generally have an advisory board for 18 months because they're not planning on being in that stage for too long. If a business is really wanting to have a good long-term growth sustainability strategy, they'll have their advisory board for a longer period, like three years, because an advisory board working together for 12 months is probably not long enough. 18 months, they're probably just really getting to really hit their straps. And so three years when you're needing an advisory board to be that solid support mechanism and accountability mechanism, the business sector really like that longer term view about their advisory board. But obviously, they'd review it every 12 months to see, have our needs changed? Are our advisory board members still right for what we need for what's next? So there's always that that view that an advisory board is never going to be there for the long term. Everyone has a use by date, uh, but it's important to review, is it still relevant for what that business needs today? Sorry, this might seem like a, a silly question almost, but what's the difference between an advisory board and the board of a company? Yeah, some people go the the real board or the board. <laughs> yeah, so we, we call it the, uh, in our terms, we call it a governance board or a board of directors versus an advisory board. It's a really good question. What is the difference between the two? There are quite a few differences, but if we look at the most simple definition, a governance board made up of board of directors is a decision-making model and it's binding. It's a serious undertaking and rightly so. So the board of directors, the individual directors can go to jail for the decisions that are made or not made at that governance board, but it's also binding on the organisation to implement based on the decisions that are made at a governance board table. So it is a very serious undertaking. An advisory board is not a decision-making model. It's a problem-solving model or a thinking system. They're there to road test the thinking, to really think through considerations and have a probably a really diverse points of view around particular topics but they do not make decisions. The decision stays with the organisation or the business owners or the founders. This is why traditionally advisory boards have absolutely thrived with scale-ups and the business market because as business owners, you know what it's like, Sean, you've got total skin in the game, you put everything into it, you live and die by your own sword. And so when you work so hard to build your asset, you don't necessarily want to then lose control over the decisions that you make. That's what happened to me with my previous business. I wanted the accountability. I wanted the support. I wanted to step up and be held to account by a group of people that I really deeply admired and respected. And I didn't want to lose control of this business that I've worked so hard to build. And so this is where advisory boards really fill a very important role in the business sector in particular. So that's opening up a lot of questions, but just the first one off the top of my mind is, what's the difference then between an advisory board and just a consultant? I would think that if it's a short term, if it's a one-off kind of project, you would just hire Deloitte, Accenture, one of these big companies to come in and just do some consultant, but it doesn't sound like these are the same things. It sounds like it's completely different. It's very different. And the ethical considerations is, to know that they are different. So there's difference when you've got a director, you've got an advisor, you've got a consultant. Where it gets tricky is when people start blending those roles because it creates automatic conflicts of interest. So we look at the, the simplest definitions again between an advisory board, advisory board members and consultants. Consultants are there 
to do things, to provide recommendations. They are the smartest people in the room, right? What they know is the most important. That's where you pay for it too, right? But an advisory board is there to think with you, to problem solve. And in that, they're not making decisions. And generally, you don't want to have those advisors to also be consultants because it really undermines trust. So you can imagine, Sean, you've got an advisory board and you have one of your advisory board members saying, I think you should do that. And by the way, I can do it. And so you would then start to question why are you providing me with that advice because it really undermines that, that trust and potential creating the conflicts of interest. And so an advisory board is many people's voices around the table and being really clear about what the advisory board is there to do and what it's not there to do and really clear about the purpose and the objectives and what kind of impact that advisory board is going to have around the confidence in the decisions that you're making as a business owner. No one else is making those decisions. You're making those decisions. So those advisors think that and know that you as the business owner is the most important person in the room because you're going to have to make a decision that you're going to have to end up backing and implementing based on that decision. The consultant is different So the advisory board is generally made up of many voices, not one, and that really helps you to de-risk your strategy and know that some of our research is that there's the power of three. So if you have a one-to-one engagement, it's like your opinion versus mine and is your opinion better than mine? So you have that personal bias happening. But when you've got three people who are independent of you and also independent of each other, means that they've got no skin in the game. There's no other alternative agenda other than wanting the best for you and to be rigorous in the way that you're evaluating the decision that you're going to make as an outcome of this conversation that we've just had. And so a consulting model hasn't got that level of independence because you've got a person's point of view or a firm's point of view and they're providing that they've got a recommendation that you should do something and you pay for that. And so it's very different when you think about the way those conversations will be had and the level of vulnerability that you would potentially have as a business owner. And this is, I think, a really important space in the market today when people are talking about trust, conflicts of interest, but also the quality information, AI. People are talking about, does AI actually alter the way that we receive advice? It still needs to be contextualised, right? And so that how do you bring it into context? How do you make sure it's relevant and the way that you are going to be making a decision with confidence and with purpose as a result of that conversation? Does that make sense about the difference of the two? It makes sense, but that leads to another question. You'd mentioned not having skin in the game, but how do advisor rewards then get compensated? Is it through a salary? Is it through equity in the company? I would think that they would, you know, they would have a kind of some skin in the game in some sense. I'm kind of curious, how, how do they get paid? This is uh, a big area of our research at the moment because there are many different views on this particular topic. And it's one of our key considerations this year to um, dive deeper into this topic. So if any of the listeners are really wanting to contribute to that, please be in contact with me because we need to hear the varying views around this of what is material interest that would create a conflict of interest. Now, I think this is really important in the investment community and startups and scale-ups. Now, most advisory boards are paid roles. And you think about the false economy that some people say, well, 
do I pay you or do I give you equity? And how much equity then means that's going to have a material interest and potentially skew the conversation because an individual has got some skin in the game. And so I've had some advisory boards where I've chaired the advisory board and had investors on that advisory board and it skews the conversation. How can it not? And so it may be that's the right thing to do, but being really very aware of the consequences of that relationship and what does independence actually mean in those environments. Now, there's studies being done at the moment that we're collaborating with to look at what is the percentage of equity that is being being held by advisors by different types of advice and for the duration and the stage of, of that life cycle of that business. And there are a lot of varying points of view. I think as a line in the sand, this is my personal view at the moment, Sean, and it's always subject to change by what we find in our research, is that if you can afford to pay something, pay it because equity in the long term is expensive. And there is always a consequence for any decision. Any which way you go, there's a consequence. But really thinking very carefully about what those options are and making a very considered decision about which way you decide to go. I'm wondering, to dive a little deeper on how much influence the advisory board can have on a company, are they, will they actually be in the boardroom meetings? Will they be a silent observer or will they always be kept separate or are they sometimes in that room? Yeah, well, observers is another topic. So I'll just remove the observer out to the side for the moment because it's a bit like the equity issue by having observers. Generally, advisory boards, because they're not a decision-making model, it's got to be practical, though, because you don't want to have multiple meetings, a meeting about a meeting. Now, in the mid-market, in business sector, generally, they'll say, I won't have a board of directors, I'm the business owner, I'm a director, and then I'll have my advisory board to then support me and then not have other directors. If they have multiple directors in the, the business and they want to have work as directors, but improve the way that they are leading the the business as directors, but then wanting to have the external input. They can run that structure in multiple ways. Some do it as a hybrid, where the governance board and the advisory board members meet together, and then the governance board then separates out their decision-making discussions to the advisory board members. So the members, advisory board members exit, and then the meeting goes on or extends at another time. So to have the agenda really clearly split between the two. But the issue around shadow directorship where advisors are actually directors but not called a director, it's protocols that really need to be very clearly defined. Some businesses where they've been working together for a period of time and they may get external investment in, it may need to shift the way that they work as directors. Sometimes they bring in a chair to the board. So they're not the chair of the board, but they bring them in as a chair to the board for a period of time so that they lift the standard of the way that they separate out operational issues to those that is then directorships. That's a really nice hybrid model for a period of time to shift their behavior and the way that they manage their meeting structures. If someone was, say they owned 100% of the company, they've this family business, been around 20 years, And now they've decided, I'm looking for an advisory board. I want some outside advice, get some other opinions. How would they go about forming it? And and what would they look for? And do you see this happening quite a bit? Or is it normally they have a 
director's board decision and then they say we want some outside opinions like what's kind of the progression sorry there's like three questions there there, there were i'll, I'll try to um, unpick that um we find that generally advisory boards is a great way to scale your governance and so there was an example of um, a business that we supported them in building their advisory board three years ago and helping them scope that out they've had their advisory board they're now ready to make a step change into a governance board. So they're shifting some of their advisory board members onto their governance board. And some of those advisory board members are not going onto the governance board, but they're now bringing in other external directors. So an advisory board is a really great way to grow up with the business in scaling their governance. So it's a really nice sort of structure to scale governance over time. We find that new directors use that model so it creates a safe environment for them to do that. Where existing governance boards bring in advisory boards will generally because there's a specific issue or an opportunity to create that they just don't have the bandwidth to cover. Now, this is a global trend and it's happening not only in the business sector, it's happening in corporates, it's happening in government, multinationals, universities, where they'll say, look, we're wanting to really evaluate geopolitical risk in a certain market. So they'll build an advisory board to support them with that one key market strategy, or it may be to commercialise a new idea, entering a new market, look at sustainability, supply chain, sci-fi, digital transformation. So these advisory boards are not about the strategy because you don't want to duplicate the conversation you have at the board of directors and have an advisory board having exactly the same agenda. That's not, you're just not, you're not really achieving anything. But these really specific advisory boards are just super smart. And what that's enabling organisations to do is actually reduce the size of their governance boards and build these specific thinking systems to support the governance board in making more confident decisions because they're able to go deeper for longer. It's an exciting evolution in the market today, Sean. Is there a difference between the advisory boards of a, a private company versus that of a public company? There's a cop-out answer to everything, Sean, and it it depends. Every advisory board is different. And we've supported organisations of all sizes with thinking through their advisory board structure. That's a free service that we provide, so it's not not looking for a gig. What's important is the thinking up front is what do we want that advisory board to do? What do we want them not to do or not to talk about? because it's all about focus. If you get that focus right, the clarity of scope, then evaluate what kind of system or structure or framework would really work well. Then lastly, what kind of voices do we need around that table? Most businesses, when they think about an advisory board, they go straight to thinking about the people. But there's a whole level of thinking that, that needs to happen before you go to that bit. Now, if you get that structure right and the thinking right, and then the, when is it you're going to review that to make sure it's impactful and to measure whether it's impactful or not? That then creates an asset of thinking inside the business, not just having an advisory board where people get together informally and talk about it and then just hope it really works. There's actually really some best practice and ethics frameworks that really can really impact the effectiveness of the advisory board. Now, we did a study on 100 businesses that had advisory boards, and we found that 90% of, of those businesses had a positive impact of, from their advisory board. And the number one impact was confidence in the decision-making. It was actually a 30% improvement 
on the confidence in the decisions they were making. Now, that's pretty significant. Had a 15% impact overall on their financial results, which is great. But this confidence is about how someone feels about the way that they're making their decision. I think about that and go, if I was 30% more confident in the decisions I was making right now, what would we achieve? Right. But 90% of businesses had that positive impact. 10% didn't. And looking at that 10%, where did they fail? And it was in the establishment phase and they chose the wrong construct for the reason that they had the advisory board. And the issue that they had was they had an advisory board to try and deal with a crisis and in particular cash flow crisis. So advisory board is not the answer to everything. I'd like it to be because I'm probably the most biased person in the market around advisory boards, but it's not the answer to everything. So you've got to be really clear about what is the issue or the opportunity that we're we're trying to address and what model or model options do we have to address it because there could be multiple ways to be able to do it. That's interesting. So if there's such positive results from having an advisory board, why don't more companies have, where do you see the greatest adoption taking place? Either companies themselves, maybe size or maybe even geographic regions for now adopting the advisory board model. I think we'll see significant changes in the market in the next, next few years for a few different reasons. One is having good governance around investment and not only about the funds, but how the funds are being deployed. And we're seeing increasingly funds using advisory boards to be able to demonstrate quality engagement with all their different stakeholders. So I think that's a driver. The other part of advisory boards, I think, being used more frequently is that it's just getting the amount of things that a business and directors need to address. The agenda is just really large. And so where do you place your energy and your focus and who are the right people to be doing this thinking with us? And so these really focused project advisory boards is absolutely where the market is now. And it's now 53% of new advisory boards are project-specific advisory boards. And I think that that trend will continue to play. The other part of the market is, Sean, I think this will hit every part of the market, is that any publicly facing leader will need to demonstrate quality stakeholder engagement in the way that they're making decisions. So how do they engage with stakeholders? And we're not talking about a linear view of a supply chain and then the customer at the end. We're increasingly seeing businesses thinking about their supply chain and their customers part of an ecosystem. So how do you actually engage with that so that it's, it's a quality outcome from everybody? I think the market will be demanding in the years to come for leaders, specifically publicly facing leaders, to demonstrate quality stakeholder engagement in the decision-making cycle. This potentially will shift the way that organisations actually operate. I think it's pretty exciting, but it needs to be done well. Now, stakeholder engagement, advisory boards is a quality way to engage stakeholders. It's not the only way, but it is a quality way. And this is a new part of the advisory board sector that's beyond just looking at strategy and making competent decisions around that but about engaging engaging the market in new, fresh ways to keep the, uh, I guess, as part of a sustainability strategy too, Sean. Oh, that's interesting. Not, not too much of a pivot, but one group that, you know, 2024, I'm working on really connecting with, especially here in Silicon Valley, family offices. 
How are you seeing family offices utilize advisory boards? Yeah, that, that's great. We're actually doing some studies on it at the moment, and quite a few of our members are senior executives of family offices or CEOs, like fifth generation CEOs of, of family offices. It, it's an interesting dynamic of having to deal with the not only the business side, but the relationships, and then bringing in how do you engage with external advisors and informing strategy, not necessarily forming it, but informing the strategy. And I think family offices have got a lot of different dynamics about who actually engages, who's got the power and the authority to engage those advisors. How are they being engaged? How do they inform family members? And this advisory board structure across a suite of investments in family offices, it's a culture of engagement. It's not just a one-size-fits-all. There's good work, absolutely good work to be had. And when I think about where some investment groups, like we've just finished a, a, a big piece of work in supporting a, a government in Asia in establishing really dynamic models, which we see the funding sector using, which is all around on-demand advisor panels. It's a great way to pre-select advisor panels and then use them on demand. There's a lot of innovation that, that's going on in that too. I think family offices have got the opportunity to be able to use these dynamic, innovative advisory panels that are really inexpensive up front and that also really fit for purpose for when you need them. I'm pretty excited about the developments for family offices in particular. Thinking about, say someone gets invited to be on an advisory board, how would you know that person is going to be effective communicator. How do you know that they'll be able to share ideas? What type of training or experience or prepping should someone have before they accept being on an advisory board? Yeah, as we talked about, it's a really good question because in the past, people would sit on advisory boards and just wing it and just say, I've been successful in my own business. Sure, I can provide advice. I've been a consultant, yes, I can provide advice, or I've been a C-suite executive. It's different. And I think the time is, is at present really important that providing advice is a profession on its own. You have your subject matter expertise and you'll have your opinion. But providing advice, there are some nuances that are really important in the way that advice is provided then also how it's being consumed. The chair certification that we provide is for advisory board professionals. And we have people all around the world that complete that credential. What they're essentially signing up to do is understanding what does good look like? What's a methodology of establishing, setting up, managing and refreshing an advisory board? And the key differences, we've talked about the difference between advice and consulting because they're subtle differences that can create havoc if you don't know what you're doing. So credentials really matter, as well as really understanding the ethics issues and the situational ethics that occur in advisory boards. Generally, you don't know what it is until you're actually sitting on top of it. So how do you navigate through what the right thing to do is? Ultimately, a quality advisory board comes down to two key things in my mind. One is a quality chair. And the other one is a really good establishment phase, which includes the development of a charter. If you get those things in place and you've got the orientation of your advisory board members as part of that whole onboarding process and you do your due diligence of your advisors up front, they're all really good management protocols that should be put in place. Just like you do for bringing on an employee, this is just as important when you're bringing on advisors. 
Are there any situations where an advisor after a certain amount of time could go, you know what, I'm really not providing help or this isn't a good fit for me and they they back out or maybe the advisor chair says, so-and-so, at first we thought you'd be a good fit, but you know what, there's the door. Does that ever happen? Absolutely. And it should happen. An advisory board role is never forever. So everyone has a use-by date on an advisory board. So having an expectation that I've got a retained gig for a certain period of time as an advisor is not the right sort of view of going into an advisory board. The expectation that you'll be in the advisory board, as long as value is being created, you have value and that value is being valued by the organisation. And then having a regular review process and Every advisor on advisory board should understand that when the job is done, it's done. Either it's your turn to back out and somebody will step back to allow someone else to step in, or the job is done for that advisory board. So they've achieved what they needed to do. It's closed down. It doesn't need to be a forever thing. And that's where it's exciting. Governance boards get stuck in this routine and they kind of, they can fizzle out, right? An advisory board is able to keep itself fresh and invigorated because either the job is done or we need different people because it's a different phase inside the business. And I I think when people come in and say, I want to sit on an advisory board because I I want to sit on boards and I need this amount of income, you've got to have the intellectual honesty to be able to say, my job is done. You don't need me anymore. How do you kind of screen those people that are looking at it as, I just want to sit on this as long as possible and get an income versus those ones that are, I'm here to complete this task that I'm moving on and and I want to do it as quickly and as efficiently as possible. Again, it's the scoping process, being really clear about your expectations. I had a focus group with about 60 business owners about 18 months ago, and their number one complaint was about external advisors and consultants is, They didn't meet my expectations. And my question to them is, what were your expectations? Well, I don't know, but it didn't meet my expectations. (laughs) So again, that thinking through, do I need, do I actually need a consultant? Which could be right. Do I need a contractor? Do I need one advisor? Do I need an advisory board? Do I need a project advisory board? Do I need governance board directors? Really thinking very carefully about all those different options because they all could be relevant. One doesn't replace the other. It's about what's the right model for what we're trying to do and you interview for that. For that. My, when I interview uh, for advisors and we interview thousands every year and even for my own advisory board, the best advisors are those that actually aren't providing advice. Yeah. It's kind of funny. It almost seems like you need an advisor to advise on your advisory board. <laughs> well, that's right. That, that, that's our role as an independent professional body. That's a free service that we provide because most businesses, first of all, think they, they don't know what they need and then they don't know who they need, right? And so it takes a level of education to work out, well, what are my options? Which is why we, we do it as a free service because if people are doing it for the first time, I think they're pretty brave, Sean, to be able to evaluate something that's new and different that they haven't done before. And I think good on them. And if they do go down the road of an advisory board or a variation to an advisory board, I want to support them in in doing it well because 
I'm living proof with my own example. It changes people's lives when it's done well. But you've got to be willing to be able to receive advice. Those that, that, that want to compete with their advisors and then say, I want to project my own personal bias and compare what you know versus what I know, that's not the point. The, those that, that don't want to listen and think differently or, or don't want to change don't have an advisory board. It's not going to give you value. Louise, you've kind of hinted, but tell us more about the service that you provide your company, your organization. Give our audience more background on that. I, I think it would be very helpful right now. Yeah, thank you. So, so our key model is the advisors providing education and a global network and ongoing professional development to the advisory market. So we're raising the standard of advisors around the world. But when organisations are just exploring it, going, I don't, I actually don't know what we need and I'm actually not connected and really thinking through the who I need once I understand what I need. So we provide a free service. It's called the Advisor Concierge to help them scope out what are their key priorities that they're wanting to address with their business or their organisation and then evaluate the different types with them the different, what different ways that they can address that by different types of models. If they say, I'm really clear, I want to go down this pathway, we help them scope out those advisor roles, and that's called an expression of interest. That, go, that expression of interest can go out to our advisory board community in 27 countries around the world and looking for what they, that's a free job board, or not just or and, they can use that expression of interest to go out to their own networks and to their own advisors. So that way they're actually creating a fresh approach to the way that they would normally traditionally engage with external advisors and make an informed choice about the way that they're engaging with advisors, not just because they've known them. How important is it for the advisors to physically be there or could they be virtual? Yeah, a lot of them are virtual. So 68% of advisory boards are, are virtual. And so even my own advisory board, we might meet once a year in person, but the others are all virtual. And in some ways, we're more, more productive when it's virtual because uh, we, <laughs> we don't distract each other. So it's, it's good to have a bit of a balance between the two, I think. But, you know, when you're looking at the growth of advisory boards like customer advisory boards, it, it's an incredible advisory board model. And for those that are listening, if you haven't thought about having a customer advisory board before, really think about it. It's such a smart strategy to co-create your product and service with your customer. And I think this is one of the most exciting phases of, of advisory boards. Your customers could be anywhere around the world. And so having a, a really clearly defined structure about what the advisory board is there to do, what it's not there to do, making sure the advisors or the advisory board members, when they're customers, understand what their role is. And it's your advisory board models can be working in so many different ways, virtual is just one very simple choice to make. What are some of the craziest things you've heard about advisory boards or any success stories that you want to share? Leaving out these names, obviously, and people's names, obviously, but got any stories you could share? Look, there's so much innovation going on in the advisory board space. And if I just look at one not-for-profit that's in the US that is looking at commercialization of technology that's that's been produced for the moon and bringing it back down to earth. Now, it's incredible what they're doing. I'm just blown away. And the advisory board members are just so excited to be involved in this level of innovation. 
through to social impact. So if you look at not-for-profits like Skaterstan, who are teaching girls to skateboard in Afghanistan, and it's changing people's lives. And their advisory board is really supporting them with that whole market engagement piece. It's, it's pretty exciting and it's universal and it, there are no limits to what, pe- what kind of problems people are trying to solve using these thinking systems to support them in it. I remember during the pandemic, I got an electric skateboard and I, I fell on it. And I remember for a couple of days, I had to cancel some meetings in person because I just wasn't able to walk and telling people I fell on my skateboard. Just <laughs> Sounds like that would have hurt. Oh my God. It was so painful. So painful. (laughs) Louise, talking about where I'm based in Silicon Valley, the Silicon Valley podcast, startups, are there any unique challenges specifically for startups? I mean, we did talk about family offices a little bit, but what about startups when they're creating or thinking about an advisory board? Yeah. Look, 29% of advisory boards are with startups and scale up. So it's an important part of the market and it's tricky, right? You're, You're still trying to work out who you are and what you need. It's 45% volatility, which means that you start on a track with advisor, then you go, oh, actually, I need this. So I need to explore this differently. One of the challenges for advisors is to work out whether you're actually right for that space or not. Some people think that they're right for startups and scale-ups, but they're not. They can't deal with that volatility. So I think advisors need to be really and it's really hard when you're trying try to work out who you are and what you're doing, is to engage with external advisors in a really fluid way that's not going to lock them in to something and just really go with the flow on it. This is where the on-demand advisor panels is just such a smart strategy for accelerators, as an example, to use. So there's an accelerator out of um, Singapore that have built an advisor panel that's got European expertise so that those Singaporean businesses or startups can access those people in Europe in those different markets is exciting ways to do it and that's really cost-effective but really to the point. And where the language, and Sean, I'd be interested to get your views, in Australia there's a term called mentor whiplash, right? And so advisors, uh, sorry, uh, startups, they start talking to advisors and they get a little bit of advice over here and then someone else has got an opinion or an idea over here and they just they just become disorientated in this whole land of advice. Have, have you found that? Oh my gosh, especially with advice over pitch decks, you'll hear startups go, wait, no, someone told me I should have this. And then another person said to take that out and put this. And then, and they're like, what do I do? It's like, and everyone's got solid reasons why this or why that. And you just see it deer in the headlights, deer in the headlights, that, that look yeah. happens all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought that person was providing advice, but now they're saying they want equity and oh, now they're saying they're a professional services provider. And so the... That happens a lot too. That's sneaky though. I'm, I'm not a big fan of when I hear people go, oh yeah, I'll help you out. I'll give you some free advice. And then later, yeah pay me this amount for a monthly retainer for this and that. And then the, and the startups feel bamboozled and, but it's quite common. It's quite common. And that's the ethics issue that we're exploring this year, right? And so when you're providing advice and when there's equity, in some circumstances you might go, yeah, that's really clean cut. And, but others it's not. And the startups don't know. They're just trying to deal with everything. And so I think accelerator programs 
the programs themselves really need to look at the ethics boundaries that they're providing their mentors and advisors and put some very simple frameworks. We've got some simple frameworks. We've got a scholarship for program managers if they want to do it to implement some really very simple quality processes for the advisors and mentors in the work that they do and don't do. Yeah, Don, too much of a tangent here, but I mean, another area, and as an investment banker, this is one of the areas I'm very sensitive of. In Silicon Valley, you'll often get these people that will say they'll help companies raise funding and they'll act as investment bankers, but they're, they don't have any of the licenses. They're not, it, and it, there's a lot of repercussions that could happen that people are not aware of. And it gets a lot of people in trouble. Yeah. But it's, that's definitely a topic that I'm very sensitive of. But that's me on my soapbox. But Luis, for people out there, was there anything did we not cover? Is there any takeaways you want to give our audience? And also tell us where we can find out more information about what you're working on in your organization. Yeah, thank you, Sean. And look, I'm going to rope you into that research that we're doing this year because uh, I think you'll have some very interesting perspectives. Look, the advisory board sector has more than doubled in the last few years worldwide. And so this is not a, this is not a fad. It's here to stay. And I'm glad that they're being used because we need to think differently about the future. We want different things about the future. We need to be investing the time and create these safe zones for these conversations. So for any business at any stage, from startup, scale-up, mid-market, business sector, government, corporate, investment groups, I'm very happy to invest time with them to think about the way that they're engaging with advice. Advisory Board Centre, advisoryboardcentre.com is, is our website. The Advisor Concierge Service is free and we really, that's our gift to help fellow entrepreneurs on, on their journey. Uh, and we're happy to invest that time to provide that independent support. Fantastic. And for our audience out there, go to thesiliconvalleypodcast.com to check out this episode. Past episode with Sean, as I mentioned, the link will be in the show notes. And more than anything, if you have any questions about investment banking, mergers, acquisition, growth capital, connect with me on LinkedIn, Sean Flynn. And with that, Louise, this is an amazing interview. I got a lot of great information. So I, I want to thank you. And for our audience out there, we're 12 hours difference right now. Yeah. Where are you based? Yeah, I'm based in beautiful Queensland, Australia. And Sean, it's late in the evening for you. I, you know, I can see the full moon behind you. So thank you for staying up so late. <laughs> Pleasure has been mine. All right. And with that, everyone, thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.